0: You have likely paid attention to the news this week. In fact, the past several weeks as our Congress recently impeached President Trump in the House of Representatives and sent the case to the Senate to be tried. If you've not watched, the two charges against the president include abuse of power in pressuring Ukraine to investigate investigate Joe and Hunter Biden. And secondly, obstruction of justice in not providing documents requested by the House in their investigation. Of course, those are the indictments leveled by the House. It's up to the Senate to determine if the President is guilty of the charges and if not, to acquit him. As I'm sure you know, the vote in the House was almost purely on party lines. And if it follows suit in the Senate, the President will be acquitted. Depending on who you listen to, CNN, Fox News, or my personal favorite, Facebook, (laughs) you likely have strong opinions about the proceedings, as do most Americans. In fact, I read some of your opinions, your opinions. Are you nervous? I'm not going to read them. On Facebook, the question for us is how do we respond in the public arena to such proceedings? Perhaps a better question, how do we respond and preserve our Christian witness in the public arena? Or does that matter? Is it true religion and politics don't mix? And so we can act righteously regarding religion and throw spiritual pro- propriety to the wind regarding politics. You say, I, 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 have, I have the right to my opinions, to express those opinions as an American citizen. Of course you do. But how does the manner of such expression affect your Chris, Christian witness And does that matter? Does the Bible have anything to say to the 21st century church regarding this issue? I believe it does. I would suggest further, I know of no other country in history in which Christians can act like Christians in the public political square. I mean, we can't, and we should. I could ask it this way to spark some of your thinking as we think about our own country. What kind of government is best? And you say, well, does Scott? we live in the good old U.S. of A. Of course, that would be a democracy, or better, a republic, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people where we elect others to represent us. So a republic, like the one we have in which those duly elected officials are currently quarreling at the highest levels like school children and have to be corrected by Chief Supreme Court Justice Roberts. Or the one where name calling and mocking at the highest levels on Twitter is acceptable. Okay, republic. Is it republican, democrat, libertarian, or independent? And I would suggest we have all of those represented in this room. (gasps) You say, oh, well, I'm more of a socialist anyway. Maybe not communism, which is just really a guise for totalitarianism. Socialism, where we look out for the... Laborer, where we all share equally. I won't get into all of the philosophical and historical reasons why a forced redistribution of wealth and mandated equality has yet to to work. Many of you are better suited to the task, but it does appear to have its problems. Okay, how about no government? Anarchy. Maybe Antifa is right. You know, where no one is really in charge, where all just agree to get along, eliminate laws, and allow the natural goodness of people to come to the fore, like Antifa. Will that work? Probably not. Or, okay, how about a monarchy? You know, divine right of kings. Or, better yet, how about a theocracy? That's where we're headed anyway, where the king of kings and lord of lords rules. You may be interested to know that there are some groups out there that are committed to what's called a theonomy of bringing God's rule to earth right now by obeying the Ten Commandments. But here's my question Until then, how, uh, 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 this rule of law based on religion, which one? Islam, Sharia law? We'll have a burqa cell in the atrium after the service? What about the law based on the Ten Commandments? Yeah, maybe we should post them in the courthouses and public buildings. After all, our country is founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic, right? The only problem with the law is people can't keep it. That's why we need courthouses. Which is why we need the grace and forgiveness of Christ under the new covenant, you see. Maybe deciding which form of government is best would be a bit challenging, although to be clear, I am... To be clear, I am deeply thankful to be an American. I don't think I've ever missed a general election in my life. But again, back to the question what is our response as Christians toward government, regardless of form? Whether we live in the United States or Iran or Russia, they have Christians, you know, or, or China or Cuba? Again, that's a better question because the Bible actually tells us. We've been in a study of 1 Peter. We, we know it's a, a letter written by Peter, two Christians in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. They were facing opposition so he writes to encourage them, reminding them, them of their great salvation and their fellowship together, together, their love for one another as believers. We finally gotten to the body of the, the, the letter last week, and he's turned his attention to how to live, not now within the church, but without. That is, how do we live among unbelievers, especially um, those who oppose us? We looked at the introduction to this topic last week. The Umbrella Verses actually go from chapter 2, verse 11 to 4, verse 11. uh, And we read these verses. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, stop right there. That's the first thing that we need to remember as we are living in a country not our own. We don't belong here. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, and we saw that they did, they may, because of your good works, good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Keep your behavior excellent. The word is beautiful. Among the Gentiles, unbelievers, so that even though they mistreat you, slander, ridicule, oppose you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when He returns. So I suggested that, that means they will be attracted to the Christian faith by your beautiful life and believe the gospel and glorify God by their, by their faith when He comes back. Our good lives can actually be used by God to draw people to himself. Conversely, if we're Christians and don't live like it, we can do damage to the gospel. I mean, we've all known people who say, I would have become a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. Now, to be clear, people are not the enemy, these Gentiles They are held captive by the enemy and by their own sin, as we once were. Our desire should be to live such beautiful lives before them that they want what we have. So now, Peter tells us what these beautiful lives look like. He talks about relationships with three groups of people, believing citizens and unbelieving governments, Unbelieving slaves and believing masters, and employers and employees for us. And believing wives and unbelieving husbands. And in the middle of all that, he gives us the wonderful and challenging example of Jesus himself. That's two weeks from today, Lord willing. I can hardly wait. And we're going to see some words or some concept, concepts repeated. Honor or respect and the S word. Submission. Now, I know that's not a popular word today, especially in a culture which highly esteems independence, liberty, freedom, and rights. But if this is God's eternal inspired word, and it is, then it speaks to us as much now as it did to the people in Asia Minor. It is not outdated. It is not archaic. And so, for example, verse 13 starts with, submit yourselves to every human institution. Verse 18 says, servants be submissive to your masters. And chapter 3, verse 1 says, in the same way you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. He starts with the relationship between people, that's all of us, and governing authority. You see, Peter's readers were under the rule of Rome, the Roman emperor and the senate, complete with local ruling officials, governors and procurators and the like. And so Peter writes, 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord, yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Notice, it, in your freedom, you've changed masters. And he sums it all up, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Our outline looks like this. We're gonna see this submit to governing authorities and then serve as God's slaves and then summing it all up, honor everyone. Not agree with everyone, but honor them. By the way, just so you know, we're gonna spend most of our time in the first point so when I finally get to, and now point two, don't pass out. Notice Peter says, submit yourselves. In other words, you Right now, he's telling us, you take the initiative. Yes, governing authorities can demand your submission. They can make you bow to their supreme authority by force. But Peter says, here, if you want to live beautiful lives before unbelievers, submit yourselves. Make a willful decision to live a life of respectful submission. I'll come back to that one. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. That's an interesting phrase. It probably, this Lord's sake probably means two things. First, we submit for his sake, that is for him. That's what we're doing here. Everything is for him. It's ultimately Christ that we are serving and we want to make him known by our beautiful lives. So our submission ultimately is ultimately for his sake and for his glory to make him known. But the idea also likely includes the idea of submitting under his will. In other words, listen carefully, our submission to governing authority should be consistent with our submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Meaning we submit as long as those commands or that obedience does not violate God's commands. If they directly violate God's commands or his character, we then do not submit. There is a place, in other words, for civil disobedience. Probably not anything to do with paying taxes, by the way. And so, for example, on the one hand, if the government demands paying taxes, we pay our taxes. Even Jesus said that, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The government commands us to obey traffic laws. My wife is going to be shocked that I wrote this one in here. We should be faithful law-abiding citizens. Further, if in a democracy or republic, I'm throwing this one in at no extra charge. In a democracy or republic, if we have the right to vote, we should exercise that right giving us incredibly a say in our government. Do you know how many people um, uh, in the world, across the world throughout time would love to have the rights that we have? But there are times when the government demands things which are inconsistent with our Christian faith. And there are lots of biblical examples. Let me give you some. One is found in Acts chapter four. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Peter and John went to the temple to pray. Along the way, they healed a man lame from birth. He was over 40 years of age. He caught, it caused quite the uproar. So Peter and John were arrested and put in jail overnight. The next day, they were made to stand before the Sanhedrin the high priest, the chief priest, and the elders, after testifying that they had indeed healed this man in the name of Jesus, don't miss that, in the name of Jesus, whom they crucified, they found themselves in further hot water. And so we read these, Interesting words in Acts 4. But when they, the Sanhedrin, had ordered them to leave the council, they conferred, They began to confer to, with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. They had done something good, you see. And we can't deny it. The guy's walking around. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Now, you have to to know that Rome granted local governments, i.e. the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body, limited power, limited authority. They had the full might of Rome behind them in such matters. They had the legal authority to make such a command. So what would happen? After all, the last thing Jesus told his disciples before returning to heaven was to take the gospel to all nations to make disciples of Jesus. So what would they do now? Listen, it is not too much to say that Christianity hung in the balance. Clearly the command of governing authorities, the Sanhedrin, contradicted the command of Jesus. And when they had the Sanhedrin, the council had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God. I love the way they said that. You guys decide, should we obey you or God? You be the judge. For we Cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis. Remember, they'd only done something good, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. The, the people had observed the good deeds, you see, and they were glorifying God. <laughs> that's that's how we're supposed to live. Sanhedrin commanded them to do something that they could not do. We cannot s- stop speaking about Jesus. And by the way, you should know that they did not. And most of the disciples, I think it's 11 of 12, gave their lives for disobeying this command. We could talk about the book of Daniel where two significant events happened. You probably heard them as children in Sunday school. First in chapter three, the people of Babylon were commanded to bow in worship before a 90-foot golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. When the music um, played, which was the signal to bow, there were three Hebrew boys um, who refused to bow. You see, the first, command, the first commandments of the 10 commandments clearly say, don't have any graven images, don't worship any other God. You know this part of the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We're cast into a fiery furnace, but God walked with them, and they came out unscathed. Their clothing didn't even smell like smoke. What's interesting, though, is this. When they were dragged before the king and given a chance to recant and bow, or face the furnace, they responded with these incredible words. Let me back up a couple of verses. Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave the order to bring these these Hebrew boys disobedient. They weren't obeying the law. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king, Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, is it true? How can this, this is law. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship me. That's the point, the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you're ready, at the moment, you maybe, maybe you misunderstood the, the law. Maybe you didn't hear the music. When you hear the sound of, listen, let me make it very clear. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, whatever that is, sultry and bagpipe and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have set up. If you do that, okay, it's good. We'll be fine. I'll let you go very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire that I'm going to make seven times hotter that is going to consume the guys that throw you in. And what God is there who can deliver you from my hands? What God indeed? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do- don't strike up the band. There's no need. We do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, one way or the other. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to obey the law. We're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. Do do you see? Our God is able to deliver us from the fire, but even uh, if he chooses not to, know this, we will not obey the law. We will not bow down and worship the image. Come what may, we will obey God rather than men. Last one, real quickly, it happened in Daniel chapter 6. Everyone in the Medo-Persian Empire, this was after Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's passed off the scene. The Medo-Persian Empire is commanded to pray to the king for the next 30 days. Everyone, uh, anyone who prays to, to God other than King Darius would face the lions then. You know that story. Daniel prays. He, he spent the night with the lions, came out unscathed. He could have been eaten alive. I want you to look at those two. The reason I gave both of those stories, I want you to look at them burned alive, eaten by lions. Daniel could have been eaten by lions, as many Christians later were when they refused to recant their faith in Jesus and bow to the Roman emperor, thrown to wild beasts and devoured. They were dipped in pitch a flammable material, and burned alive. Serving as torches for Nero's garden parties. God does not, to the present day, always deliver like we think he would or should. But he always does what is right, and it is always right to obey God. Come what may. How might that look today? What if you're living in China and they mandate abortions because you can only have one child and you find yourself pregnant with a second? What if your governing authority demands you recant your faith in Jesus or face stoning or beheading in the 21st century? What, what, what if they command you to not teach everything in the Bible because it's considered hate speech, like in Canada? Well, what if they command you to not meet in Christian gatherings, worship services, or the, or the underground church? What if they tell you evangelism is punishable by torture, imprisonment, or death? What if they outlaw the Bible What would you do? These are clear examples of that which requires civil disobedience. We must keep moving, I'm still on verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Interesting translation, the word is actually submit yourself to every human creature or creation. The idea is submit yourself to those humans having authority like governments, emphasis on human. There is a higher authority. And he goes on to list a few examples of those in authority, whether to the king. These were people in Asia Minor under the harsh rule of Rome. They would have known that the king was referring to the Roman emperor who saw himself as divine. Submit anyway. If our dating of the letter of Peter is right, then he wrote when either Claudius or Nero in the 40s and 50s were emperor. Emperor. Both of them, by Christian standards, were awful emperors. Nero's the one who started the fires in Rome and blamed it on the Christians. He's the one who started the first official persecution against Christians. He's the one who had them arrested, sewn up into uh, animal skins, and thrown to beasts in the arena. He's the one who lit them alive on fire. He's the one under whose persecutions and authority Peter and Paul were martyred, executed, And under this authority, Peter writes, submit. Paul said the same thing in Romans 13. All of a sudden it makes Schiff and Pelosi look tame. Sometimes we excuse submitting to those in power because we consider them unworthy of submission or honor. But there is a sense in which we honor the position without necessarily being impressed by the one filling the position. Respect the position even if you cannot respect the person. As I suggested earlier, there's perhaps no other country in history where submission and honor to those in authority has been easier. So this submission, woo, gotta move fast. So this submission is due The highest authorities down through their designees, governors, the entire structure and hierarchy of government deserves our faithful, honorable, faithful, honorable submission. After all, Peter tells us they are sent by the king to govern, to maintain some semblance of order. Governments generally, generally punish evildoers, that is, those who break laws and praise those who do right. That was more common back then. Governments uh, more readily recognized good behavior. They would erect statues, you know, things like that. We see it every once in a while when uh, medals are given to soldiers, medals or certificates of honor given to citizens. The point is, here's the point. Be like those who deserve praise from governing authorities rather than those who are considered evildoers. Immediately, I know your objections. You say, what if we don't like those who govern and we especially don't like their laws? It does not... Matter. Almost any government is better than anarchy. And ours is to submit in as much as those laws, in as much as those laws do not contradict God's commands. Whether we like those in power or not. Nero or Constantine, the one who legalized Christianity. Nero or Constantine, Democrats or Republicans. It has been rightly noted, I believe, that the church often calls for prayer for Republican presidents and simply castigates Democratic or Democrat presidents. Verse 15 tells us this is the will of God that by submitting, that is obeying, by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's not meant to be a slam. Remember, unbelievers will malign us. They will accuse us of evil. But by our good deeds, to include our obedience, we silence them. You see, they are are simply ignorant and foolish in their willful disobedience. That's what they are. They're still trapped in sin. So they are ignorant, foolish people. Bringing us to verse 16, second point. Remember I told you, hold on. Because about now, Peter's readers and you are saying, wait just a minute, I got my rights. What do you mean I have to submit? I mean, am I not free because I'm a child of the king of kings? Yes, you are. That's true. And it's true you have been freed from the tyranny of sin. And so Peter says, act like free men. You're free to serve. You've just changed masters. Act as free men because you are, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil in the context, don't use your freedom as an excuse to not submit to those in authority. Paul, in Romans 13, makes it clear that those in authority are ordained by God. He raises them up, he takes them down. Nations like Babylon and Assyria, he used as instruments. Ours is to trust that God has the big picture in mind and to trust him in the midst of governmental challenges like impeachments. In fact, Peter goes one step further. You may be free men, but you're still bond slaves. The word is slaves to God. To him, we are ultimately responsible and will give an account. Bringing us to our last point, I told you we'd go quickly. Verse 17 Honor everyone. In the midst of submitting, in the midst of obeying, and by the way, you cannot separate obedience from submission. It's inherent in the word submission is obedience. In the midst of submission, Do it with a proper attitude. This is especially true for us given our freedoms in America. Because I'm not sure that we always submit. I'm talking about us as believers, the church, with a proper attitude. Look at these four very clear commands. First, honor all people from the king to the lowest of the low. How can Peter say that, especially when such people may be oppressing us, especially when governmental authorities are so rotten to the core, maybe they're ridiculing us and persecuting us, how? Because they too, listen, they too are made in the image of God. We can at least honor that. Remember the overriding principle throughout these chapters, it is our desire to live beautiful lives, honoring people, respecting people, because we want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Are there people you despise that you don't want to come to faith in Christ? Secondly, he throws in love the brotherhood. Not only are we to honor all people, but we pay special care to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter is the, uh, is the only one to use this particular word, uh, but he loves those corporate words, brotherhood. Now, some of those in, uh, in authority to whom we submit our brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't just honor them, love them. By the way, that does not mean because they are brothers and sisters that they will do everything right. They won't, neither do we. But we honor them and love them anyway. Third, while we may honor all people and love the brotherhood, God alone deserves our reverential fear. I think Peter is adding a word of encouragement here. Yes, I know that you are oppressed. I know that you are opposed. Yes, I know that I'm telling you to honor all people, including those atrocious governing authorities. Don't fear them, fear God. Finally, I close with this, honor the king. Notice he starts with honoring all people and ends with a special admonition to honor the king. He may not be worthy of honor, but grant honor anyway. Remember, it is our desire to live beautiful lives so that we may win some, even the king. Let me talk about this one for just a moment. Not only do we submit to the king and his representatives, not only do we submit, we show honor and respect to those in governing authority. I believe this is incredibly important for us today. Somehow, I think we have the idea that we may submit because we have to, but we don't have to honor. It's not what he says. And remember who was, in, who was the king when he wrote this. Nowhere is the lack of honor more readily seen today in our country than on social media. I don't know if it's because we feel some sort of freedom or anonymity or lack of accountability but some of the things Christians post on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter is unacceptable. It is not honoring. I want you to think of the following people or issues. Immigration and border control. You can read about it on Facebook. Impeachment and and Trump or Clinton. Uh, Republican or Democrat. Adam Schiff, Nancy Pelosi, makes you squirm in your chairs. I've seen all the cartoons. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. Abortion and women's rights, LGBTQ rights and gay marriage, gun control and the Second Amendment. I think, I hope you get the point, I could go on. Most of these are issues or people which are currently dividing the country. Some are even moral issues. I want you to know I feel very strongly about almost everything that I put on there. To be clear, I believe most of them are moral. But there is no place for Christians to show dishonor and a lack of respect. We are commanded to honor all people. We do not have to accept or affirm positions, but but can we focus on positions without the disrespectful attitudes and sarcastic humor that plagues our society? We, of all people, are supposed to rise above all of that. We are Christ followers, and his grace grace has changed our lives. Can we act like it? In fact, right now, I'm going to ask you to stand on your feet. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for our repentance, for our biblical positions. Listen, I, I, March for Life was last week. If, if I, I would have been there, and it was very respectful and very honoring, those are the kinds of things that we should do. Biblical positions, I'm going to pray for our leaders and I'm going to pray for our witness that God would restore perhaps what we have lost. Can we participate in the public arena in a way that honors our Christ?